Perhaps you've experienced that familiar instance at a beach where you walk from uh, your beach towel or where your chair is down to the water, and you go into the water, and, they, and you make your way there in a relatively straight line, and then as you're in the water for a little while, you don't realize it. You're just, you know, playing, you're having fun, and so on, and then all of a sudden, you come to realize that you've substantially drifted from where your beach spot originally was. If you've ever had that happen, then you might have gotten out of the water, and you begin to walk towards your beach spot, and you might have said something along the lines like, no way we've drifted this far. Because you just didn't think it would happen. You walked straight down, you were in the water, you didn't realize it. Next thing you know, you're like so many feet further from where you originally were. I think it can be like that sometimes, spiritually. And sometimes the distance that somebody can drift from where they once were can be surprising. Doubtless, such is the case with apostates, the likes of whom we've been considering in this epistle. But if you were to think about your drifting, just to kind of take a natural circumstantial instance that we're all familiar with, if you were to liken that to what often happens spiritually, there are some factors of commonality there. So if you were to walk in a straight line from your beach spot into the water and then you drift, at least two things probably happened. One of which was the relentless impact of the waves. You're in the water, and even if they weren't like huge waves, I'm not talking about tsunamis were coming to you one after another, but the little waves that kept coming, and the undertow that kept going out, little by little, you were rocked to and fro. It just kind of kept coming, one after another. They kind of beat upon you in one way or another, and you were moved incrementally further and further away. So that's one factor. The other factor would be you just weren't trying to keep your place. You you weren't intentional about trying to stay where you were. You were maybe playing, you were maybe having fun, you were maybe speaking with somebody else or talking. You weren't making sure that you could be within close proximity to the part of the beach that was close to where your beach towel and chair was. And as a result of not being intentional about staying, you ended up drifting. So I think those two factors can happen sometimes spiritually, that the wind and the waves continue to come. To use the illustration of waves, they come and they incessantly crash upon slash make contact with the person as the water does in the ocean, and there's a relentless kind of pulling and drifting that comes from the world, the flesh, and the enemy to see those who profess Christ drift from sound doctrine. Those who are spiritually immature, it's language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, uh, 14, that we ought not to be like children. And the the imagery there would be those who are spiritually immature, to have a kind of spiritual immaturity. He describes such ones as being tossed to and fro. And the word that's used there has nautical connotations. You, You think of sailing. It's, it's the image of, say, like Matthew Poole uses a ship without a ballast. So it doesn't have some sturdy bottom that's going to keep it. So it's easily drifting one way or another as the waves continue to come. And then, back to the beach illustration. If a Christian doesn't anticipate the need for alertness, or if there is unpreparedness concerning discerning false teaching, and the need to swim intentionally against the drift of the water via a kind of pursuit of the truth, what can happen is that there could be a slow or sometimes either slow or sometimes a speedy drift that can occur. Now Jude's epistle was aimed at prodding 
believers. It was aimed at preparing believers to contend for the faith to the end that they'd be protected from drifting. So that's one of the aims that Jude has in mind. That the people to whom he's writing, the beloved, who were kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, kept for him and kept by him, that they would be protected by virtue of being prepared. Being prepared is a means of being protected from drifting. Drifting in in an apostasy kind of trajectory, even if you're not apostate and kind of getting off the road for a little bit while, even if you are a true believer, this is meant to protect you so that you wouldn't drift. But it could also be a means by which you are called to rescue others. That's part of his instruction. It's meant to protect, and it's meant to prepare, and it's meant to equip believers to rescue others. We're going to see that work itself out as we approach the end of this epistle. Now, in the verses before us, verses 17 through 19, which I had um, read to you earlier, um, we see a transition. A transition begins now. Um, Jude hasn't addressed the believers directly since verse 5. In verse 5, if you look back in your Bibles, he tells them, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this. There he's speaking directly to them. And he'll reference them again as being those who are partaking in agape meals, love feasts, where the church comes together for fellowship and shares a meal together. He he references them and as the apostates being with them, but he hasn't addressed them directly, but now we're going to see him address believers directly. Just by way of quick reminder as to where we have been, he spent a large portion of what we've studied so far speaking about apostates. Remember, when I say apostates, it means somebody who falls away from the faith. A true believer will not apostatize, even though a true believer can drift for a time. You don't even want to walk down the apostate road for a season. You, by the grace of God, want to stay on the narrow path prescribed for you. But what we've seen so far concerning apostates, if you were to look at verse 4, we've seen the subtlety of their infiltration, and we get a little glimpse of their doctrinal and behavioral deviation. That's what we see in verse 4. If you look at verses 5 through 7, we have three historical examples that we've studied that illustrate the certainty of their judgment. If you look at verses 8 through 11, we see three historical examples after whom the ungodliness of the apostates was patterned to one degree or another. And that's preceded by descriptions of their ungodly behavior. You go on to verses 12 and 13. He's still expounding upon who these people are, and he gives six metaphors that describe and illustrate to one degree or another their falsity. They're they're like clouds that don't bring rain. They promise things, but they don't deliver on the things that they promise. Maybe alluding to 2 Peter chapter 2, they promise freedom, but they themselves are actually in bondage and in corruption. In bondage to corruption. In verses 14 through 16, we see a further witness to their forthcoming judgment and to their ungodly behavior. Remember, ungodliness referenced quite a few times in Enoch's prophecy. We see that communicated all via Enoch's prophecy, as well as the description that followed in verse 16. So now, contextually, we're about to turn a corner. You're going to see that at the beginning of verse 17. Jude is going to address believers. There's one more description of apostates that come uh, in verse 19, that comes in verse 19. And then there's a closing exhortation before a closing doxology. And the closing uh, exhortation is kind of the meat and potatoes of how to contend for the faith. But here we start to turn the corner. It's great instruction. Important instruction. So we begin in verses 17 and 18 where we read, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time 
who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So Jude begins, and you see it right there in verse 17, with a noticeable contrast. It's noticeable in the New Testament Greek. It's noticeable in your English text translation right in front of you. But you, beloved... See, he's changing gears. A shift is in place. But you, beloved, the section that he's been in is essentially drawing to a close, and now he's going to provide instruction to the beloved of God who are in the midst of infiltrating apostasy. False teachers have arrived. They're in the assembly. They're causing divisions. They're causing problems within the assembly. And now he's addressing believers as to what they are to do. He told them, still in verse 17, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to see in verse 18 that Jude is calling attention to a specific prophecy. Specific prophecy. We'll consider that in a moment, but I first want us to briefly notice how he is implicitly, implicitly affirming the authoritative and spirit-inspired nature of apostolic teaching. See, the early church knew rather instinctively that the apostles were providing spirit-inspired, authoritative doctrine. You see that early on in church history. You see it right in Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon at Pentecost happens. 3,000 people are added to the church. On that day, 3,000 people are saved. And then what do they begin to do immediately? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There was this understanding, sort of instinctively, that the apostles were authorized emissaries of the Lord Jesus Christ. We even see that among apostles who recognize other apostles as writing Scripture. Right In 2 Peter 3, Peter calls attention to the fact that Paul wrote Scripture. And there are plenty of other examples of this. John knew when he was writing Revelation, for instance, that it was divine prophecy. We see that in the opening chapter of Revelation 1. And many of you know I've given many examples that you could see in the scriptures of this. So I think we do see it here essentially implicitly communicated. And we would do well to follow their example, those in Acts 2, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And we ought to heed Jude's instruction by recalling the words of Christ's emissaries, the apostles. So let me just give you a bit of practical instruction. Remember, he's calling them to remember specific prophecy. That's the context. I just want to say paradigmatically here, we would do well of growing in the grace of remembering. The Greek word that's used here for remember is one that simply means what it says, to recall, to remember. And the reason why I say that to you, beloved of God, is because we are in a... uh, We are in a day where it's easy for people to let technology do all the remembering for them. Right? Like, remember, I don't have to remember anything. I'll just search. You know? Why think when I could search? And I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you not to become, by the grace of God, do not become so mentally passive that you become mentally lazy. Remember. The, the, lang- the language is like, call to mind. Search your databanks. And I'm not saying, you know, you sit there for an hour trying to remember a verse of Scripture and don't use the access that you have to a search engine right in front of you. I'm not saying you just do it for an hour and you waste time. But I'm saying try it first. Think. Use your mind. See what's in there. See if the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance certain Scriptures that you're trying to recall and so on. Don't become so mentally passive that you become mentally lazy. Search your mind. Be actively engaged in the process of recalling apostolic truth. That is biblical meditation, at least in part. It's where it begins. You think. You think about it. 
I can go off on this for extended time because we have so many um, means in our society that are coming at us to keep us from actually thinking and processing and reasoning things through. And by the grace of God, the people of God won't be like that. And to whatever degree we have been or you have been leading up to this day, by the grace of God, we all will have a fresh commitment to using our minds for the glory of God and recalling the truth that he's put in there and put more truth in there to recall as well. Now, one of the blessings, and we see it right here, one of the blessings of such recollection is that when you begin to recall the truth that has been put in your mind and heart, preparedness results. And if you have that preparedness, recalling what the apostles, for instance, predicted, then you are going to be better protected for certain things that will come in the days ahead, yet alone the things that are here now. Jude told his readers to remember how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So there would be mockers, there would be those who would scoff, there would be those who would make um, jokes about, that's the idea, they would scoff, they would make jokes about, they would make plays upon certain biblical truths or doctrines that Christians believe. This would happen in the last time, and the last time is essentially the inter-Advent period, really beginning with Jesus' first coming and going all the way to Jesus' second coming. So that is the last time. That is the period of the last days. And he says that there would be those who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So these mockers are going to be those who not only mock, but they have a lifestyle that fits their deviancy. The deviancy that they show with their lips is the deviancy that they show with their behavior. They walk according to ungodliness. He's used this word quite a few times in Enoch's prophecy. He comes back to it again. The idea is that they're not walking with reverence towards God. They are not God-like or representing Him properly, and they are walking without reverence towards God. So it's kind of a breakdown of the verse. Big picture idea of why he's saying that, I think, is so Christians wouldn't be surprised when it happens. It's so that Christians wouldn't be surprised that when apostates show up, even in a local church, or when they show up from without, Nevertheless, when they show up from within as well, it wouldn't surprise Christians. This thing, kind of thing, has long since been on the prophetic radar. The apostles sought to have the people of God prepared for this kind of thing. The idea being, if they were forewarned, they would be forearmed. Peter used this kind of language. Jude may be referencing, I know he's referencing how the apostles had spoken these words. Maybe he also has in his mind how Peter had written these words. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, reads like this. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and the commandment and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their un, to their own lusts. Now I'm going to spend a couple of moments here in Second Peter, because Second Peter, when Peter's talking about those mockers coming, he gives a specific instance of how they will mock. He's given one specific for instance. He goes on and he says that they would be those who would say, where is the promise of his coming? And they were saying that in the first century. And doubtless people have said it since. The idea is like, oh, we heard Jesus is coming. Haven't seen him. Is he coming? Where is this promise of his coming? That's the idea of how they would mock. 
And it's interesting because you don't need to necessarily make good and reasoned arguments. You don't have to try to discount historical proofs and evidence when you mock. You don't have to do any of those things. You just mock. And oftentimes it seems to be very compelling to people. So it doesn't have to be a well-thought-out argument. It just has to be a kind of appeal with mockery, with a kind of mockery tone. And it oftentimes sways people. Um, The mockers claim the kind of uniformitarianism that everything has always continued the same way. That's what Peter says. You look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says that they're saying, essentially, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything's the same. You keep saying there's going to be this intervention when Christ comes, but everything has always been the way it always has been. It just has always been like this. And Peter says, well, they willfully forget two things. Things haven't always been like this. And the first instance that he gives in verse 5 is creation. God created the cosmos, the created universe. He created the earth. God created the entire universe and he filled it during the course of six 24-hour literal days. And then, secondly, he references the worldwide flood. In verse 6, in that cataclysmic event where, with the exception of eight people and representation from each land animal, of the animals that would inhabit the earth, everything else was destroyed. Everything else was destroyed. So things haven't always been as they were. It was a mockery. It's a uniformitarianism position, but Peter critiques it. But nonetheless, Peter said mockers would come, and they did. Now, the mockers that Jude is speaking of, doubtless they may be doing that kind of mockery as well within that context. They may be mocking the Lord's return. But Jude doesn't limit it to just that. It could have been mockery of all different kinds. Perhaps they mocked Christians who didn't participate in the immorality that they were participating in. Maybe they mocked Christians and said, oh, come on, you're so prudish. You're so puritanical. Not that they they would have used the puritanical reference in the first century. That's a little bit of a later reference. But come on, really? You're so legalistic. I mean, if you walk with Christ and you don't hide your lamp under a bushel, you too will be mocked. All right, enough with church. Really? You're too fanatical with that whole thing of being there on the Lord's day. You're not fun anymore. You won't come to the bar? Come on. You know, you really turned out to be different. You just got so boring. If you walk with Christ, if you don't put your lamp under a bushel, somebody at some point is going to say something like that to you. A little, bit, a little bit more, a little bit later on. If nobody ever says anything to you, then that, that's something to you know, make you concerned. But people will say all kinds of different things. You, know, you imagine somebody saying something like this. I don't think they present it like this, but I, I enjoyed thinking about it this way. You pay attention to the abundance of evidence that supports a young earth and a young creation, and you reject the pseudoscientific myth of evolution that we were all taught to believe by faith? <laughs> Not that they would put it like that. But one way or another, mockers will come. Mockers will come. Sometimes they will have big platforms. Sometimes they'll sneak into churches and not be noticed by people, at least for a time. And sometimes the shots they take are direct, and sometimes they are indirect. I saw a recently posted video that compiled some examples of contemporary mockers. I thought it was quite providential that I happened to see this. Um, Chris Evans 
who many of you might be familiar with as having played the role of Captain America and who was the voice of Buzz Lightyear in the recently released uh, Lightyear movie. He called those who didn't like the fact that homosexuality was presented in that children's movie, he called such ones idiots. Um, He said that such people will go the way of the dinosaur. Now I say for all of us, This would be something for everybody in this room and for Chris Evans and anybody to be aware of, that Proverbs 14, verse 9, warns us all and says, fools mock at sin. That's something for all of us, that the God of the Bible has spoken, and if He has spoken and if He has called something wrong, it's not foolish to agree with the God of the universe. It's dangerous to not. Stephen Colbert He sought to mock God, late night um, talk show host. He had an old man, this is the best way I can kind of describe it to you, an an old man on a a screen of some sort speaking with a cliche kind of old man voice uh, who was supposed to be God. If if I'm getting the context right of, of what's happening there, and I'm just trying to put the pieces together with the video clip that I saw, telling Oprah essentially that he heard that she was seeking a sign, and then he holds up a sign that says, run, I would think, likely encouraging her to run for president whenever this interview happened. But the idea was to mock God. He puts God up on the screen and talks with him and has him talk in a kind of um, old man voice that was meant to be humorous. But doubtless the whole thing was blasphemous. The examples could go on. There are examples from history. Frederick Nietzsche, who said that, quote, the Christian conception of God, and he would go on to say, is one of the most corrupt conceptions of God arrived at on earth. He's famous for the phrase, God is dead. From what I understand, originally found in one of the mouths of one of his literary characters subsequently explained by him. But then there are those who carry his mantle today. There's somebody like Yuval Noah Harari, lead advisor to Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. If I'm correct, Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, at least one of them. He has stated, Yuval Noah Harari, God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. He goes on. He, he goes on and he says a lot more than that. He speaks as being rather unimpressed with the God of the Bible only being able to create organic matter. And that that's something that we are seeking to do and we want to go beyond God and create inorganic life. And the examples, the examples could go on. And while we'd want, every person I just referenced, while we would want every person who either intentionally, inadvertently has mocked God and mock the Lord Jesus Christ, we would want every person who has done such a thing. And maybe you could even look back in your past and say, I was such a one. I did such things, not knowing what I did. We would want such a one to come to see the grace of God and the forgiveness of God in the gospel. That's what we would want. We have no ill intentions towards anyone, not them or anyone. What we want is the best for them, and the best for them would be to come and see Jesus Christ as the one who died for sins like that. But contextually, what's going on here in Jude is the idea that Christians are to anticipate this, to be prepared for this, to not be surprised by this. So if you get mocked for Christ, if you live in a world where those kind of things are being said, those kind of things are being done, you're not to be surprised. They told you, the apostles told you, this is going to happen. The faith that you believe is going to be mocked. 
The Christ who died on the cross, even though it was prophesied so much in the Old Testament Scriptures, even though we have an abundance of manuscript evidence that testifies to it today, with an amazing amount of textual matching among all those manuscripts, even though there are those who are antagonistic to Christ or indifferent to Christ, like Tacitus, who would give witness to the fact that Jesus Christ suffered the extreme penalty under the procuratorship of Pontius Pilate, even though there be those like Pliny the Younger, who would give testimony to the fact that early Christians in the early first century and before worshipped Christ as though a God and there'll be others there's even those like Josephus who would speak about the legitimacy of John the Baptist's existence and James the brother of Jesus and so on that's not even including the testimonium that could be debated there's so much evidence to speak to the legitimacy of it yet people will mock it as if none of that even exists as if God has never spoken, as if there aren't prophecies that have so evidently been fulfilled and uniquely in the man, Jesus Christ, who is truly man and truly God, as if there isn't an abundance of evidence, historical evidence, internal evidence, evidence of prophecy fulfilled that witnesses to Jesus Christ, nonetheless, he will be mocked. Nonetheless, you will be mocked. And you've been foretold that you should not be surprised or dismayed God is in control. I think that's part of the reason why this is being communicated. He knows it all. It's not taking him by surprise. You think apostates are taking God by surprise? You think mockery is taking God by surprise? Actually, mockery just displays his patience. Every time somebody mocks him, and they aren't immediately judged, it speaks to the forbearance of God, the patience of God. He knows it all. He's seen it all. And churches that know that apostasy and mocking will come must be ready by God's grace to stand firm. A little bit of an aside. This is a little bit of a side note, and I'll get back to this. I I think, this is just my opinion, I haven't evaluated this to kind of make many nuances, but I think in previous times, like when I first became a Christian, oftentimes it was common for people to mock you behind your back. That's usually how it would work, at least in my experience. Somebody might talk to you about Christ and say, oh, well, and then they'd be polite and say, oh, very interesting, very interesting. And then behind your back, he's a fanatic. And then, and then the word would get around to you eventually, like, they said you're a fanatic. You know, like they, they, it seemed like we were having a nice conversation. Like, like, that's what it was, you know, back when I first became a Christian, 2001, 2002. I think, it's just my opinion, so it's just, this, I'm not saying it's biblical truth, it's just my evaluation. I see the tide turning there where it's going to become, as it even is now, more and more prevalent where people say, no, the right and righteous thing is to confront such people, mock such people, because they are haters. Because they don't only not tolerate the existence of people with other beliefs, they don't acquiesce to those beliefs and call them equally legitimate. And now it's going to become, my opinion, increasingly accepted and celebrated to confront and mock Christians. I think if you just kind of look at the culture in which we live in, I wouldn't be surprised. I think we're there, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see those tides continue to rise. Therefore, be prepared. Don't be surprised. Now, I want to just say this um, a little bit more about mockery, because I think this will um, strengthen you. I think it will encourage you. I think it will build you up. There's a long history of mocking, and it's found in the Scriptures. Um, again, don't be surprised when it comes, but I also want to show you the pattern that has been. Drawing from Second Chronicles 36, verse 15 and verse 16, we read, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by messengers, rising up early and sending them, watch this, because he had compassion 
on his people and on his dwelling place. But, verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Jeremiah attested to this personally. In Jeremiah 20, verse 7, Jeremiah said, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. You could look at the book of Job. Job uses this kind of language a lot, speaking of the mockery that he had to deal with. So that's kind of like interpersonal mockery in the midst of the suffering that he went through. Jesus spoke about mockery that he had endured and that his disciples would endure. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, second half of the verse, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, think about that. How much more will they call those of his household? They've said that to me. How much more are they going to say it to you? Jesus foretold his disciples not only about his death and resurrection, but the mocking that he would endure beyond that. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, we read, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify And the third day he will rise again. Matthew goes on in the gospel to describe this mocking. We see it in verse 29. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! A little bit later on, verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. A little bit later on, verses 41 and 42. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Luke writes about how on the day of Pentecost those in Jerusalem were mocked. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Acts chapter 2 verse 13. Paul, when he preached in Acts 17, we're told, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Again, I say all of this to say, don't be surprised when mocking comes. Be surprised if it doesn't. And take inventory of whether or not your lamp is under a bushel. Take inventory of whether or not you actually believe that Christ is who He said He was, the Messiah according to the Scriptures. And then I would say, let your heart be humbled. Let it be humbled afresh by the fact that the Son of God humbled Himself, becoming the object of scorn and mockery, with fallen man making sport of Him as He stood in our place to die for our sins. You feel the weightiness of that? Creation that's receiving its, its, its next breath from Him. Mocking Him. Making a play about Him. Making sport of Him. Yet He endures that for us. He endures that for us. Now we come to one more description of the apostate false teachers who had crept in unnoticed. We see that in verse 19 where we read, These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. So Jude is now applying the prophecy specifically to the context of those to whom he is writing. And he's helping them see how these 
opponents that they had to deal with. They fit the bill of these mockers, and this is what they are, this is, this is who they are, and this is what they do. So Jude provides a description here. I'm going to begin with that second description, if you look at verse 19, who caused divisions, because it's what comes first in the text more literally. Um, they are listed as those who cause divisions. Now I want to note this, because I think it's important for us as, as a church, this is so important to note. And when things like this come up in the scriptures, I think it's important for us to take time and understand what God's word has to say about issues like this. Division is a serious concern in the word of God among Christians. So important. A serious concern. Even as it was in the early church. In Romans 16, for instance, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Within the context of discoursing about the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, the Apostle Paul wrote, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. The works of the flesh, listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. The likes of which Paul says that if anybody practices these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listed among those things, the works of the flesh are dissensions and factions. Paul's instruction to Titus, as he was ordaining elders in Crete, included this. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So division, I say that to say division was a serious concern in the church then, and it should continue to be even now. And when false teaching spreads in the church, now I'll I'll get to how it can happen otherwise, because division doesn't only happen via apostates. Um, More about that in a moment. But oftentimes when false teaching spreads within a church, it leads to division. It leads to the development of factions. One of the things by God's grace that we won't see ever happen in this church is the development of like little cliques. Right? Where you have a certain cliques and it's like this group is that. and this. Having relationships and fellowshipping with one another, not saying you have to have everybody over your house. If you have two people over your house, you've got to have everybody over your house. That's not what I'm saying. But certain factions, like this is the group that is you know, that group and they like this kind of doctrine. This is the group that looks down on that kind of group. You develop factions and cliques oftentimes as a result of some sort of um, unorthodox teaching. There will be those who as a result depart from the faith. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that the Spirit had spoken that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Why? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Some would leave the church, showing that they were never really of the church. John references that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. You might say that these men were like blades renting asunder that which ought to have been unified, at least from a human vantage point. But I want, to, I want you to understand this. There was even a purpose, though, in divisions happening in the church. Divisions had a purpose. We see the Apostle Paul reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. Right after that verse that I read to you, where he says, I hear when you come together as a church that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Well, he goes on to basically say that the existence of those things was often to reveal, essentially, who genuine Christians were. That there needed to be divisions. A kind of sifting often happens in that way. You think about those who departed from the church that John spoke about and how healthy the church would be after they left. 
It's not mean. It's just a reality. If somebody's going to say, you know, I'm going to live in licentiousness, I'm not going to embrace the lordship of Jesus Christ, and if the leaven actually leaves the lump of the local church, it's actually a healthy thing for church. That's part of the reason why church discipline is to be practiced. Now, the Greek word here for causing divisions, it's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. You could look in some uh, ancient Greek literature, and you could see how that word could be used to speak of making distinctions. And it wouldn't be surprising if the apostates did that, if they considered themselves, say, spiritual, and others non-spiritual. Maybe they had Gnostic leanings before the Gnosticism of the second century became full-bloomed, and they made distinctions in that way. But even if they did that, that damage would not be limited to the matter of categorization. It would actually lead to begetting separation between actual believers. So they are those who would cause divisions. More about that as we close. I'll give a word about unity leading into the Lord's table. Um, here we're told, and it's kind of the irony, that they were sensual persons not having the spirit. Now, when we hear the word sensual, understandably, we think of sexually immoral. Um, and we've already seen plenty of indicators in this epistle that apostates often fit that bill, that there's sexual immorality that goes on with um, who they are. But here that word for sensual is um, sukakoi, sukakoi. It's a word that essentially means soulish. Some translations might render it as worldly or earthly. You might think of it as the opposite of spiritual. That these people were so earthbound. They had their minds so set on things of the earth and the desires of the flesh. They were walking according to, say, the base desires of man. As opposed to walking according to the spirit and being heavenly minded, you might say. The root reason for all of this, we see it at the end of verse 19, was them not having the Spirit. Not having the Spirit. So at this point, Jude just, just lays it out there to say, I want you to understand, these people are not Christians. That's essentially what he's getting at here. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So not having the Spirit of Christ, they were governed by the flesh. That explains their behavior. They weren't Christians. They were unregenerate people whose behavior was driven by instinct and carnal desires. Now, it's not being judgmental. It's being truthful. We know that in and of ourselves, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, think of who you were before Christ. And your desire wasn't to glorify God. And there were things that you did and you didn't think twice about doing them. You wanted to do said thing and you did said thing. You didn't think twice about it. Well, I want to give a word about unity as we prepare to close. And I think this is important for us, and it leads us into the Lord's table. I think, I think as we look at this text, we look at verses 17 through 19, I think Christians are reminded not only about who these people were and to be prepared for them. I think that's explicitly, first and foremost, what is being communicated here. I think implicitly, just by seeing that, we are reminded of who we are to be instead of that. As I've told you before, the Christian is to be the anti-apostate. So you're learning about who these apostates are and what they do. And part of what should happen as we're learning about them is that we remember, I shouldn't be like that. And Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry to whatever degree I have been or am like that. I think that's part of what should be happening. These people, rather than being compelled by um, the Spirit, were compelled by worldly instincts. That's the idea of sensual persons. But we are to be led by the Spirit. Unlike those who cause divisions... Christians are to work towards unity. 
work hard, endeavor to preserve unity. Christians are to be peacemakers. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that Christians ought to be those who are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is not to be sought at the expense of truth. So that's not what I'm saying. We put truth aside and we just, you know, all unify around unity. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Unity is not to be sought at the expense of truth. But believers who are pledged to the truth and of the truth are to heed Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. See, right before Paul tells believers, endeavor, one, one translation I believe says, make every effort to preserve unity, to work towards unity, and so on. Right before that, he tells Christians, basically, in order to live that out, Christians are to be those who are walking, quote, with all lowliness and gentleness, with all long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. I mean, you go through this epistle, you see the apostates are marked by pride. Christians are to be marked by humility. Apostates are often harsh, mean. Christians are to be marked by gentleness, kindness. God's people must be patient. They must bear with one another, showing forbearance to each other in love. And this is important to know because Christians are to know that divisions don't only happen in the presence of apostates. Divisions can happen even among believers who are like bona fide, solid believers. Such was Eodia and Syntyche. You go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, and Paul said, I implore, strongly urge, Eodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He speaks so highly of them as he goes on to, to, to direct some instructions towards uh, his true yoke fellow and he continues to basically say, I think he called them fellow workers and so on. But these women were, were Christians. They were godly women. Yet there was a division among them and Paul urged them, no, 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 be of the same mind. So you don't have to have apostates present for divisions to happen. You can just have a cold kind of growing indifference. You can have this kind of passivity towards other believers where you just kind of disconnect a little bit. What is it? What is it? There are so many things. You can begin to unpack it in your own mind. Division doesn't only happen via apostates who say, I follow this false teacher. Everybody over my house to watch this false teacher on the TV. That's not the only way in which divisions happen. You can have just quiet indifference and frustration among people in a local church as though they're thinking, I'm just going to keep this below the surface. Nobody's ever going to feel it. And trust me, if one part of the body has that kind of thing happening, it's going to ripple. It's like referred pain. It's going to be referred to somewhere else in the body. Don't. Hear the instruction of Paul. I urge these to be of the same mind. Figure it out. If you've got to walk the Matthew 18 path, walk the Matthew 18 path. If you've got to go to somebody and tell them that they've offended you, go to somebody. Don't go to other people. Go to them. Tell them that they've offended you. Do it. If you need counsel, get counsel, but do it from the Word of God's instruction first and go to the person and seek to make it right. Don't settle for division of one kind or another. I'll say hello to them in person, but I'll hate them in my heart. Whoa, no, you don't do that. You know, I won't be divisive outwardly, but I'll be divided internally. Don't do that. You don't want that. And I think part of the way God's going to continue to keep this church pure, practically speaking, I know positionally we are in Christ, but it's by actually working out these things. You know, and let me tell you, if you're somebody who's like on the outside in, and you're like, I don't have to worry about that because I'm not even that connected. That's not a solution to the problem. The idea is that you would be so connected that you learn that these things actually have to be navigated. 
If you think they don't have to be because you're so on the periphery, then you don't understand what it really means to be in the local church per the prescription of Jesus Christ. If you're in at any, for any amount of time and you develop relationships with dear blood-bought believers, you will find that at some point or another, friction happens. And you will find that by God's grace, if you work through the friction in a biblical way with humility and kindness and forbearance, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you, it leads to a beautiful strengthening of familial relationships. It's a beautiful thing. Now, when we come to the Lord's table, now watch this. This leads us right into the Lord's table. Such a fitting lead-in from Jude. When we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of what our Lord suffered for us, dying for our sins. We partake of the table, we know this, in remembrance of Him. But we also ought to remember what the table teaches us about us. Not primarily. Secondarily, at least. You may put it further down the line, but it's about Christ. It's about remembering Christ. But then there's a secondary thing that we're to observe when we come to the Lord's table. As Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, he said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, For we, though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. I'll read that one more time, briefly expound it, and close in prayer, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake. For, this is the reason, for we all partake of that one bread. In other words, Christians are one bread and one body. Christians are unified. Like one loaf. Like one body joined together. The reason why? Because each partakes in the reality to which the symbolism of the bread points. Jesus' body given for all who believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. If there's any motivation for unity, that's it right there. There's no greater love than that. There's no greater motivation for unity than that. The bread that we partake in together is a reminder that Christ died for us. It points to the body that was given for us for the forgiveness of sins. And Christians are one bread and one body because each partakes of that bread and the symbolism, the reality to which that symbolism points, namely the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. So that's the beginning. The beginning of the introduction of um, Jude kind of expounding on how to contend for the faith. The meat and potatoes of that comes in our next consideration of uh, the epistle of Jude. But for now, we'll close with that and celebrate the Lord's table together. It's in Jesus' name we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way in which your love for us is demonstrated in your instruction and forewarning to us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that even as Christ told his disciples of the um, persecution that they would experience. And he told them these things beforehand and to the end that they might not be surprised, but that they might be prepared. I thank you, Lord, that whether it is mockery or persecution for holding to the precious gospel of your son, I thank you that you have told your people that such things will be. Father, I pray that when faced with mockery, Heavenly Father, that you might find us as your people responding, not in kind, Lord, not with mockery, but with kindness, Lord. 
with love, speaking the truth in love, being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us with a reverence, a reverence towards you and a reverence towards the fact that we are speaking with somebody who, though despising God, is nonetheless made in the image of God, though that image is marred. Father, we pray that you might use us, Lord, to be ready to speak truth and love and with kindness and gentleness and that you would help your people endure whatever mockery that they will undertake, Lord, either directly or indirectly for being identified with your Son. Father, we pray that you would help us as a local church to continue to be on guard, Lord, in our own lives so that we might not drift, so that we might swim against the waves, as it were, and press in towards you. You, of course, working in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. And that you might protect us as a church, Lord, so that we just might be mindful of anyone who would seek to cause divisions or bring in aberrant teachings, Lord. That we might, in love, be ready to address such things so as to preserve doctrinal purity and practical unity. Oh, Father, may you continue to work these things in us. We thank you for your Son and our Savior, who suffered most ultimately to the point of death, bearing the wrath that we deserve. And then we think, Heavenly Father, of the mockery that he bore along the way. What manner of love is this? That he would be reviled for us, and that he would be mocked. He would bear the shame that we deserve, Lord. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, for your great love in sending him. May you work in every person in this place, Father, to be protected from mocking, to see the truth for what it is, true, and all of the great affirming witnesses to that truth that you've provided. And may you help us, Heavenly Father, to walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the desires of the flesh, and be those who seek to preserve unity, knowing how good and how pleasant it is, according to Psalm 133, when the brethren dwell together in unity. You love it, Lord. So may you be glorified and pleased with the unity you see here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.